So last week we started the introduction. I don't know if everyone was here last week or not. The introduction to uh, the book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And we're just going to walk through... We're going to walk through the book and, and, and try to do it in a way that we're interacting around it. The first chapter, uh, some of you, have, even if you're familiar with the book, listen, if you're like me, even if I read it six months ago, I could reread it and, and rediscover it. So there's just a lot of nine times out of ten when I'm preparing a study and reading something, the main thing is, that, and, and I, am I going to get something out of it? And when I get something out of it, that's the Lord. If he's working in my heart and through this, that's sufficient enough, right? So the first chapter of the book is really a, um, a very – we were talking the other day about being a teacher versus a preacher. It's kind of very motivational, that first chapter engaging us in that, that question of the good news, the good news of transformation. And we live daily in the obvious truth of the need of transformation, and he kind of brings that to life. And I want to really bring out some questions and help us to engage in those questions. Look at a couple passages that he brings out as well and just go through these. And really, again, some of these questions try to, to engage them because he just brings out just a lot of, a lot of great things. And I, I was actually brought back a lot of things. You know, I had, my master's was a – I had a minor focused in counseling and actually brought back some of the – a lot of teachings about Adam's. Actually, because when we talk about the sin piece, I remember a lot of things that were taught about him actually as a always not so positive example. I remember just going through that in my classes and going through this first chapter brought some of that back to, to, to light as well. So anyway, just things for us to engage in and, and discuss. <clears throat> I want us to begin by reflecting on a few statements that he makes right in the beginning of the book before he even talks about his overriding theme, talks about the... And so I want us to engage in these few questions here. One, God's plan is that is that through the faithful ministry of every part, the whole body will grow to full maturity in Christ. God's plan, God's desire is that through the faithful ministry of every part, the whole body will grow to full maturity in Christ. What, is, what does that mean to you when you read that statement? I'm assuming it pops up here normally, right? What does that mean to you when, when he makes that statement? What's the what's the whole what's the, every, the ministry of every part the whole body? Each individual member of the body will contribute to the overall strength and operation and function of the body in its own unique way. Yeah. Way. One thing he brings out right in the beginning of the book is the necessity of of, of the body of Christ to to reach what he's going to go through his book that that transformation that is needed needed. He doesn't just talk about transformation that is needed. He talks about transformation that is possible. That is, and boy, so everyone, every time you're faced with sin, every time you're faced with, with wayward daughters, you're, you're, the hope is that God can transform, can grab that heart and make it new. I mean, we live in that permanent hope, and we should be living in that hope and pray towards that end. But the, one of the things he emphasizes right in, in the beginning is the necessity of this being accomplished within the body. And the, the role of the body in that regard. So, very helpful right from the get-go. And he, some things I'm going to go, we're going to try. We're trying to cover one chapter per per Sunday. We're going to have to go fast in some parts and and try to discuss them as we go along. When God calls you to Himself, He also calls you to be a servant, an instrument in His redeeming hands. What is that? Well. What does it signify to you when he says that? Yeah. 
And he's talking, so as following his model as, as the servant, one thing he brings out in the beginning is that that transformation is, is to what end? Towards what end? That transformation is towards a, a, a an end to glorify God, right? To make us servants. Not we're we're in a, such a he talked about we're such a self-absorbed society that we see everything in terms of how it serves me. That transformation is not is not just this idea of well I, I'm going to be transformed so I could be relieved from an addiction or I could be transformed so that I can be uh, health or prosperity type gospel for what it brings to me. And transformed for the ultimate purpose of, of glorifying Him. And when that, what the, what drives us in this transformation is more than what it brings to us. Is what God intends to, to use. <clears throat> he goes for most of us, church is merely an event we attend or organization we belong to. We do not see it as a calling that shapes our entire life. He uses the word calling. And this goes back to his train of thought here. Was the purpose of the body as a whole that we're called? That transformation is called into to servanthood, as serving one another. And then makes a statement here: most of the church is merely an event we attend, or organization we belong to. And we agree to certain standards, we agree to certain doctrinal statements, and we find one that's congruent with where we want to be. We find one that the music is where we want it to be. The people dress the way we want them to be. And people, you know, talk, or they read the translation, want them to read, and whatever it is, we, we can go. We have the luxury of, of going to Lynchburg and spending about, spending about three years going church to church, finding the one that has the exact flavor that I'm looking for, because we're looking for an organization that's gonna, that, that we're going to attend and find something that's kind of congruent with that. He said, we don't see it as a calling that shapes our entire life. And... He makes, I think, the last statement, I think, is, is in this line as well. The church can never hire enough paid staff. I like that. And again, all this is really in his introduction part before he even gets to any of his points. But the church can never hire enough paid staff to meet the ministry needs of the average local church. Why does he say that for? <clears throat> I was talking to a teacher last Friday. I had dinner with a couple last Friday, one of the teachers. And talking about the church he goes to, he says, they have such... We have this huge staff. Because every time they they hire the pastors, every time they hire the pastors, they hire the wives for a role as well. And says, and it's just a, we're actually going. We actually are going towards a trend towards lower staff numbers as a, in the country as a whole, going towards a a trend towards reducing the amount of staff. But what is he saying here? Why? What, what does that statement mean? The church could never hire enough paid staff. So what could you what um, what's our natural response to a need in the church? A natural response is who can we hire? It is. Oh, you know the we need better you know the, the ground that I kept up we need to hire somebody. Bathrooms we need to be cleaner and we can just hire somebody. 
we need it, let's hire somebody. Other youth, other college, we've got a college group, let's hire somebody. Our natural response, because of the culture we're in, is to hire somebody. What's the, what's the, what's the flip side negative impact of that? People don't serve. Sean, we don't need you to serve. A group of professional ministers. Yeah. We have professional ministers. You know, Brad Vigman, uh, we just came from his conference, and he, he said everybody is a counselee at, at some level. So therefore, everyone in the body of Christ is a counselor at some level. So that's why you can't hire everybody because we're all so unique spiritually. I also think that um, you know one person doesn't have all the, um, for lack of a better word, experience. You know, like we've all been through things, and we're just given a strength and push through things that you know other people may not have gone through. You know, so one person can fill all the need for you know an entire body. You know, when we had we had a pastor. That's a great idea. <laughs> I'm not sure how to reverse the tide exactly in that, that dynamic. But I've heard many times, I have a lady at the school who was visiting the church, and she was saying, I just don't feel like the church needs me. In other words, there's no needs. All the needs are, are fulfilled or met, you know, and so you come in, in a body where you want to be able to find a place of service, and you look around thinking, well, there's just nothing for me to do. Well, imagine if you took away all paid staff, what that would generate. It would generate a need for an entire body to be mobilized and to see, do we want this to work or not? And it would take an entire body. Because not one man could do all the teaching, all the Sunday school, all, all, whatever it is involved. It would really, it really, mo- now again, I'm I going from one extreme to another and what that should look like. But what I am suggesting is that he, his, the intent of this transformation is to serve the body and find place within the body of Christ. And we, we too often, see, you know, we too often see the church. And it's, it's a cultural piece. I, I tried to study in the history once, you know, how did we go from a spectator church to a participant church to a spectator church? How did we become a spectator church in history? Why do we – now churches, you come sit down and you attend. Now, we don't have a show. Some churches are more showy than others, and uh, they're, they're designed that way. We're not designed that way. But nevertheless, you still could come, be fed, and walk away, and let that be the, uh, the totality of your church experience. So I, I put down another thought here in regards to this. is The passive body that pays professionals, culture of the modern evangelical church, must be forsaken for the ministry model God so wisely ordained. And to that end was this book written. So he, he makes a statement as to why the book was written. He, I just want to repeat this. He says, I've, to this end, the book was written. He says, because there's a passive body that pays the professionals, culture, of the modern evangelical church that must be forsaken for the ministry model that God has so wisely ordained. Whenever we tell people, you got to trust the word, you got to trust the word, you got to trust the word, what does that look like? Well, the first thing you're going to hear is someone says, well, we really need to have a more, um, a broader body. They're going to say, well, who has time? Well, no one has time. Or 
well, we don't have the skills, or if it doesn't get down, the ball's going, someone's going to drop the ball, and time will get down. You know, we just hear all the objections to the necessity of, of knowing how to um, function as a, as a body. So, anyway, he, he starts out that way. He, talks, he makes this other statement in regards to the purpose here. God uses people who are themselves in need of change as instruments of the same kind of change in others. And the others is what he focuses on, the necessity of the church being part of that process, that growth process, that transformation process. Uh, the, the, the body of Christ is, is an integral part, part of that. He starts out by talking about the best of news. He talks about you know he, the ra- the phrase is used in the beginning is a reason to get up in the morning. What gets you up in the morning, and why is it so worthwhile that you're willing to give your time, your talents, and energy? And he reminds the reader that uh, what should drive us is the hope of change, change in his image. What should, and that that should be what drives me. That should be what drives my my children. The what should get us up in the morning. What should drive and motivate us. It's not, do I like my job? Is this fulfilling job? Is it pay well? All these things. There's a, there's a need for some of these areas, obviously. But ultimately, is the hope of change to be changed in his image. Uh, he talks about how it all began with profession. He, he spends at length about that and uh, talks about how everything was perfect harmony. There was no harsh words. No, When you read through this, it makes you want to obviously wish for heaven because he describes the perfection of of creation without sin, no power struggles, no unhealthy competitions, no vengeance, no harsh words, no fear, no guilt. There was understanding in communication. There was love. Uh, what did they do with their time? I mean, if they, they had a perfection sitting around. We could go on. I'll describe. And then he describes how once sin entered the world, and what he's trying to describe is the pervasive nature of sin. Sin is not just this thing that tacks on to our lives. It's not this this little okay. You're basically you're basically okay, but sin kind of messes you up a little bit. No, he talked about how sin is really at the core, at the heart of our problem, and this perfection came crumbling down once sin entered into the world. Um, so he brings out what one part I thought interesting that he brings out how sin brings out a double-mindedness, mixed motives. In other words, not it's not just um, Sin, flagrant sin, as we might call it, or the, those obvious, grievous sins. It, sin creates this double-mindedness in us, this mixed motive. And he also describes things a little bit later. I may have this in some of the notes, but later on, how uh, sin also just um, it, it warps the good, the good and the bad. It warps the blessings. What should be a blessing becomes a curse because it's a blessing, but you use that blessing to to mock somebody else with it. I thought that was interesting. In other words. Yes, we understand how sin warps things in a negative way, but even in the even in blessing. So when you're let's say you're blessed, like with Nathan, has a smart to understand internet stuff, you know. So, but that becomes a, bl- a curse because he uses that as now he's got contempt for those other illiterates, you know. He does. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you. That's right. What you know? Right, who waits is like, could that not just turn it off and return it back on? And you know, that's, that's the dummy solution because you know it's too long to explain them how it really works. Turn it off and turn it back on. Um, so he, he he talks about the pervasive nature, and that part is important when we're coming to um, explaining how to address sin and how to confront sin is to understand the pervasive nature of sin. Um, 
So he, he talks about Mark 1.15 as uh, he brings this as a turning point. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he, he just describes uh, that this is a moment where he's saying the time has come. This is the good news, right, that we live in this self-absorbed culture that now we have a the joy has come uh, and he's come to make us part of a greater plan and his plan. That's what one part that he brings out in the first chapter is that, you know, he's, he's making us part of a greater plan. A plan that is worth living for, a plan that's worth getting up in the morning for. That plan has to be something that's beyond myself. If that plan is just me, and my and, and, and I'm the end, and I'm the joy, and I'm the end of my the plan is me. It's a miserable plan. It's a miserable plan. You know, the, the joy, the good news is that He's come to make a part of a greater plan, and that that's His plan, and He's transforming us for the purpose of um, being part of His plan. So He says He describes how all this chaos uh, comes actually is fulfilling in a purposeful and a meaningful way his purposes and his plan something that great something that is greater than us uh it must be except for something to be worth living for it has got to be something beyond my own life right in in the essence of the question itself for something to be worth living for it's got to be something that's worth that's greater than my own life for it to be worth living for and that's what uh, he goes there. And then he goes, I think he gives uh, Revelation 19. So if you want to just turn there, and uh, we'll go to two passages here, and then 2 Corinthians. Get Colossians 2, maybe a little bit later if we have, if we have time. He just, the reason why he described this, and I, it's, it's here, he, he describes in Revelation 19 because it's, it's the subject of our rejoicing. Here's, the, here's how far down the road we're looking as, as believers. Here's our joy. So Revelation 19, verse 6, he says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. I mean, that's, that phrase right there is is our rejoicing. That's that's our that's that's our expectation. That's our, that's the plan. That's the plan. And in the midst of all the other dysfunctional lives that we live because of, of sin, God is continually working a transformational work for the purpose of of this. For us to, when He returns, to make this proclamation that the marriage of the the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's been our expectation. That's been are awaiting. That's what we're waiting for. Then he goes, what? And in the meantime, he says, what? And his wife has made herself ready. We're the bride. We're not just we're not just spectators at a wedding. It's one thing, much different, right? To to attend a wedding because you're a spectator at the wedding. If you're a spectator at the wedding, well, you've got this little note on your refrigerator that says, "Remember to be there for so and so wedding." And if you don't forget it, you're there. And you try to mark it on your calendar, and you, you, you change, you show up, and you're there for a wedding. Now, how different is that as opposed to the person who's actually preparing for the wedding? They're consumed with it. They're obsessed with it. They're, uh, the, the, their thoughts are, are consumed with preparing for the wedding because they're, they're the bride. That's the image he gives of the body of Christ. We're, we're not just waiting to attend a banquet 
like we're going to just we're going to be there part of a, a great feast we're there as the bride and so the, in the meantime what are we doing as a bride we're what we're preparing ourselves God is in my life preparing me for that wedding day he's preparing me for that uh, for that moment so everything he works in through me as, as chaotic as it might seem at times as unorganized as it might seem because of my limited perspective, as dysfunctional as that might seem sometimes, as unfair as I think it is sometimes, it all ultimately is there to fulfill, preparing me for the marriage of the Lamb. And it says that to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Look, look, look at the description of the bride here. She's arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. God has gathered people who have a passion for him much more than having been invited to a wedding. We are the bride. And we stand before God in fine linen, clean and bright. A point that he brings about, I just find it to be so so helpful, is just simply God is God is redeeming the people for himself. So this this instrument in the hands of of God is is this transforming process and yes it's it's a great tool for me to know, help know how to help others as well but ultimately I look at the, I look at it and say wow a reminder that uh, one my expectation two the transformation process that God's fulfilling and accomplishing in in my own life um, a few questions here I want to make sure I've got time to get to this last A couple of comments on these statements here. I'm going to go over Second Corinthians right now, but he says um, we must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles. We offer people a redeemer. In this transformational process, it's not about offering, like the second phrase too. The Bible is not an encyclopedia; it's a redemptive story. Because the, the the key is trying to bring out in this redemptive process, in this transformational process, is that it's not about what it's not about following a set of encyclopedia rules or definitions or guidelines it's about following what following a redeemer it's about following christ now how how different is it to think this first phrase here we must not offer people a system of a system of redemption a set of insights and a set of principles we offer them we offer people a redeemer how how different are those two things one is a relationship How many times have you heard people discuss things about what they should do or not do and they ask you the famous question, is it sin? You know, your kids, as they grow up, at one point they're going to ask you, is tattoos a sin? Because they're looking at what? They're looking at a system that they want to adhere to. They're going to ask them now, what, 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 would, what, is, what is pleasing to God? They're asking what? What is, what is a system of redemption? What, how can I still be true to the system and not violate the system? When in reality, we're talking about a relationship. What else does this first, these two statements make? make us?
Christ, Christ is our only hope. You know, when people, are, when people are disappointed with church, what are they disappointed with? They're disappointed with the system. The system that didn't meet their needs. The system that wasn't this or that that they expected it to be. Because they focused on a system that weren't focused on a relationship. How many people, uh, when they truly walk with Christ, will say, well, Christ really let me down? Same thing with salvation. When, when people question their salvation, I've never heard somebody question their salvation and question it as it pertains to what God did. They always question it as it pertains to what they did. They always question whether they were sincere enough, did they pray me, did they really mean it, did they understand it. I've never seen someone say, well, did God really die on the cross for me? Did he really, did he really mean it when he died on the cross? No, they always did I really mean it when I prayed and trusted Christ. But the relational piece in the church is it falls apart whenever we trained people to function within a system and not within a relationship. And so it's it's a constant. It's easier to follow a system than it is to follow a relationship. It's much easier for my kids. And when they're young that way, right, when they're young, you give them very clear guidelines. When they're young, you say, Here, here's a line in the sand. Here's where you don't cross this line right here. Because they're young, they need to know exactly where they should go and not go. As they grow a little bit older, you don't want them to think that way. You want them to start thinking, what would mom and dad want me to do? Not what did they tell me, what did they allow, what did they say, but what is mom and dad's heart, and am I, and am I pleased to their heart? So the counter is full of dishes that need to be put up. It's not that mom tell me to do it. It's if would mom want it to be done. <laughs> and when you look at when you in our walk with Christ, boy, how what what a radical difference in our attitude is simply am I am I content with with a system of redemption and not a, a relationship with the Redeemer? So great great insight in in that part. This is something that Mark hammers home quite a bit. And that's been very helpful in, in counseling is having what they call the right calls here the right diagnosis. Personal lasting changes hinges or change hinges on correctively correctly diagnosing. Jane didn't correct this by the way, so if there's mistakes, it's my all me. Personal lasting change hinges on correctly diagnosing what is wrong. If someone rejects the biblical view of people, there is no hope that they can bring about lasting change. Meaning, if you can't, if we're going to look for transformation and understand how to bring about transformation, we can't do that unless we identify the source of the problem and how to bring about transformation. Now, there is no doubt. I remember. Let's go back to what I said earlier. I remember in classes, in counseling classes, addressing the question of everything is not sin is not the root of every problem. And they quote Adam, as a matter of fact, as being a proponent of sin as at the root of every problem. And I, I remember agreeing with well, whether that's not accurate. Well, I think now, in retrospect, what I was taught was not exactly representative of what he's actually saying. And here, anyway, what, what Paul Tripp is saying. What I mean by that is, he says, is my problem, so he addresses two issues. Is my problem experiential, which means, is the root of my problem what I've experienced? I was abused as a child. I was mistreated. I didn't have two parents. I, is that the root of my problem? Is it experience? Because if it is, then you unravel that experience and you try to 
uh, explain the experience or try to place God and his sovereignty in the midst of the experience. Is it biological? Is my problem biological? So will finding the right chemical balance solve my problems? Now, he, what I find helpful, he addresses these questions not in a way where he just sweeps them away. There is a legitimate place for those discussions, obviously, because experience does impact the way we perceive things. But I think what he brings about, what I thought was helpful here, is that sin, sin precedes all of my problems and that we are born in sin. In other words, I still, even if experience is part of the... I guess I, we just need one screen. Even, that's, that's all right. That's the last screen. Even if experience is part of my problem, meaning it contributes to, how, to, to who I am today or the biological piece is part of... Uh, the issue needs to be addressed. Nevertheless, sin is still at the root of who I am, how I respond to it, how I perceive it, how I see God's role in it, and how I, how I respond to it in a biblical way. And he, he says, and Colossians 6 is pretty familiar. Really, Nathan? What'd you do? Just turn it off and reboot it. So... I don't even have that dog on my screen. Where did that come from? I didn't know I was going to do that. <laughs> All right, I've got the, I've got, it'll come and go. Just look both ways. Now, as long as I bring up my family pictures off of this thing. You know. um, so three, three things. One, sin produces rebellion. I changed my phrase. It says sin produces is rebellion. I changed my, my spelling and my, my phrase, and I didn't correct it. Uh, never mind, you guys get it. You're, edu- you're educated people. You can read between the lines. Sin produces rebellion. It's a character flaw I'm, I'm born with. What does it mean? I naturally, it, it gives a lie to the idea that I'm autonomous. It gives a lie to the idea that I'm self-sufficient. It gives, and it makes me self-focused. Which means sin naturally makes me feel like I'm, it makes me self-focused. It makes me feel like I'm self-sufficient. makes me feel like I have a certain lie of autonomy. I don't need anybody. I'll, I'll be through this. So sin naturally makes me... If that one blinks, just cut that one off. Maybe it's just going to... That one screen over there. Because otherwise somebody with some kind of a... Get, right. We're going to have some seizures here in a minute. Um, sin produces rebellion. So how does, how does the fact that sin produces rebellion, how does that impact how I respond to difficulty or blessing? I mean, if I have a naturally rebellious heart because of a sinful heart, how does, that na- how does that impact how I respond either to difficulty or to blessing? So when you're blessed, that, that plays out by our attitude we have towards others. For example, I see somebody that, you know, they feel like they're, they're working hard enough, they don't have a job. Man, they should work. You know, I mean, they should, they're not responsible. In, in other words, you don't, you don't recognize all the blessings you've had of your upbringing, of your, uh, my, my kids have no idea how blessed they are. They just don't. I got three children who are in college. They have money and savings. I says, you know, your goal is, is not to, they're, they're worried about having money and savings. I said, your goal is to graduate without owing money, not trying to save money. 
But I've got two who graduated now. Well, John Mark's just about done. They both have savings. Claire's saving money, and she's going through school. It's like you don't have any idea of, of the blessing that really means in your life. Then you take the blessing, and what do you think? And I hear it from my kids, right? Oh, I worked for it. So you even take a blessing, and you twist it, and sin makes you twist it to make it think that you somehow deserved it because you've earned it. We had a discussion, Jane had a discussion in one of her classes with uh, seniors last year talking about, oh, no, there's no such thing as, uh, no, not white favoritism, but sometimes it had to do with one of the students talking about, a kid made a comment about, oh, his father, he built the thing by himself, his grandfather gave money, and then he did this. Well, he's like, and the other kid said, <laughs> he doesn't realize what was passed on to him for his father to have a business today. And the other kid who lives, in his case, literally inner city, broken family, no money, on welfare, and you're, and you're thinking he had no privilege, no, no advantage over me? And, and, and the other kid had no concept that he had been blessed, no concept that, that, that he had, had somehow, because that, that natural tendency of responding that way, two things quickly since we're out of time, sin produces foolishness in us. Foolishness believes that there is no perspective, insight, theory, truth, more liable than our own. Which means we first trust what? We first trust our own instinct. We had, I was counseling someone last week about something. He goes, I just, I just know in my heart. I just feel it in my heart. I'm like, you feel it in your heart? I mean, you know, you know where that leads? You know what the Bible says about feeling things in your heart? I'm like, we were never created to be our own source of wisdom. The last one, sin renders us incapable of doing what God has ordained. It goes beyond the inability. I don't want to do God's will. I think my way is better. We cannot do the good we were created to do even when we want to do it. This is the most tragic result or results of the ultimate disease and sin. Redeemer rescues me from myself. And with that statement there, just he describes such in a healthy way the pervasive nature of sin and how I respond to things. How it makes me incapable, how it makes me self-centered. I see tragedy, everything in light of myself. And even, even if there can be a biological issue that needs to be addressed, even there's experiences that need to be addressed, ultimately the root of my problem that I'm still going to have to address is how my sinful nature makes me want to respond to all of that. And if I don't understand that, then I'm only going to deal with the experience and try to unfold the experience and find a reason, a reasonable explanation for the experience or shift blame for somebody in that experience or I'm going to just look for a biological answer. Uh, talking to a mother a month ago, her son has a lot of anxiety issues and different things. It says, listen, it says, she says, it took the doctor, it wasn't a doctor, I think it was a, I don't know if it was a psychologist, but two hours to diagnose the problem. I said, the reason why it took two hours is because it took him two hours to talk to your son to understand his behavior. And so she could analyze his behavior. And so she wants to analyze his behavior. And through that analyzation of his behavior, then come to conclusions as to what his problem is. I says, you don't have any medical record of what his problem is. And so unless you, unless you can go to the root problem, they're going to keep wandering and looking for answers where, there's, where there are none. And so... Um, he, he just really, in, in this whole idea of how to, be, how to transform and how to be transformed, the necessity of understanding the pervasive nature of sin uh, is, is key to being, of course, finding our answers in our Redeemer. So 
great. I've been I've been really encouraged by the book myself. First, uh, reading through the first part of it, looking forward to um, to, to going through this. We talked about. I think it's going to be more helpful. Mark and I are going to be tag teaming on this chapter. So, regardless of which chapter we're covering, we'll based on our schedules, we'll be covering uh, different chapters, uh, but trying to continue through that through that theme theme together. So, all right, let's go ahead and um, pray and commit the main service to the Lord. Father, we do thank you that we have the the great news of the uh, transformation that you bring about in our lives. Lord, I pray that not only for myself, but that for my children as well, that I might pass on to them the the need to follow a Redeemer and to please a, a loving God in the process and to understand how how sin has warped everything about how I respond, how I think, and how I process, and I must go to you and trust you for wisdom and understanding. So, Lord, I just uh, thank you for this time. Uh, pray for Pastor uh, as he brings a sermon in a few moments. And we commit this day to you, Lord, and we pray. Amen.